And uh, especially this morning as we give you our praise and, and our honor and our glory and our worship, Lord, we pray. Lord, just be with us and guide us, and we uh, thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hey, let me remind you of uh, this little blue card. It's a connection card. So if you're with us, maybe the first or second time, we'd certainly want to, to know who you are and how we can minister to you. So fill that out, please, and put it in the offering plate or take it to the Connection Center. Uh, it, right out in the lobby, just sort of to your 11 o'clock, you'll see it out there, okay? And then there's also prayer request cards, and be uh, uh, make sure you get one of those and, and fill that out as needed. And uh, and we'll be faithful to to pray uh, pray for you. Hey, a big thank you for uh, Daniel and those who helped him uh, last week in leading and allowed me and Cammy to uh, be gone so we could see our grandson Brennan uh, be baptized. I hope everybody gets a chance to see their children and and, and grandchildren uh, come to know the Lord and be baptized. We uh, give you a little snippet of what happened. The pastor Jim uh, said, Brennan, now. Why are you being baptized? Because you're a believer? Because you're a born-again Christian? And you could have heard all the way to the back row, yes! And, uh, and so, it just, what, a, what an awesome experience. And he was so, so excited, and I hope everybody gets that opportunity. Well, let's uh, continue in worship uh, today to, and, and sing this great song of, of hope and encouragement, Whom Shall I Fear? Shout out. 
This next song we're going to sing, I believe the inspiration for it came from Matthew 11. Let's read it together. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light.
bless our tithes and offerings today. Lord God, we, we just come before you now, and we can find rest in you. We, we pray, Lord, that if there, is, uh, there are folks in here today that just feel like they're running, running, running on a, on a wheel like a hamster and getting nowhere, Lord, help us to put our faith in you. Help us to put our trust in you. Help us to, to just like the Scripture reminded us, Hook our yoke to yours, Lord. Help let let you be our our strength, our guide, and uh, we don't have to do it on our own. And so, Lord, we just we just pray that uh, for those who are who are struggling today and just need to rest in you. And Lord, we pray for this time of of offering and tithes. May it glorify the great name of Jesus, and in His name we pray.
this week I was thinking about we said goodbye God called to glory some really great servants of the Lord this past uh, winter and winters are typically hard on churches and in that way but to, to God be the glory they were called home and to think that the last time they shut their eyes in this world they opened their eyes to the life to come and saw who Jesus their Savior and uh, so I was thinking about that. This, this song just came to, came to mind. Let it be said of us. Let these things be said of us, that this is what we would stand for. This is how we will live our life. This is, I will live my life, as the pastor said in one uh, uh, funeral service a while ago, uh, live your life in such a way that the pastor doesn't have to embellish your life for you. Really, right? Live it in such a way that nobody doubts. Um, yeah, I'll say it. Uh, so, little 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 town somewhere in southwest Missouri, and uh, not Ozark. Uh, two brothers, uh, horrible people. Didn't go to church. Didn't make a. Didn't have any profession of faith. Didn't you know they're just horrible folks. And one of them died. And the brother says, goes to the Baptist preacher and says, "I need you to preach my brother's funeral." And. Uh, I'll give you a generous honorarium, and I'll double it if you call him a saint. Well, what's he going to do? So he says, here's lies so-and-so. He was a drunkard, a liar, a cheat. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> Don't let that happen at your service, right? Let this be said of us. 
Well, good morning. I will invite you to make your way to Ephesians chapter 6. Many of us would love to look down at verse 10 and see the word finally. Amen? <clears throat> finally. Be strong in the Lord. And it is going to be wonderful <clears throat> to look into the ending of Ephesians that is chock full of admonitions to us as the people of God to understand that there is a spiritual warfare going on in this world. But we dare not neglect Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. I would remind you that it's one thing to say, I belong to Christ. It's another thing to start becoming like the God to which you belong. And obviously what we've been looking at in the scripture challenges us in that regard, doesn't it? That if we're truly born of God, if we are filled with the Spirit of God, then it will issue forth into a life that is conformed to the image of Christ in every area of life. So, with that being said, beginning in verse 5, bond servants. The Greek word is douloi, which is slaves. We don't want to sugarcoat any of this, okay? It is the word slave. And I want to remind you as we start this, that is the primary uh, description of who you are in Christ, the most often in the Bible. Did y'all know that? We forget that. We like the words that sound a little better for us, like friend of God and in the journey. Or we, but when you see the word slave, you're like, no, what does that exactly mean? Well, it means he's your master. You are his possession. So bond servants. The English at many times has messed up a little bit of the Greek translation, but it is the, sir, it is the word slave. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Just stop and think how revolutionary some of these terms are in this particular century when Paul is writing. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And then one verse is given to masters. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. What does it look like to live as a Christian in your particular role in the home and in society? What does that look like? How does the Lordship of Christ transform how I conduct my day-to-day life in the specific role that God has given me? Now, this is obviously the last section of the domestic roles of life. Remember, the rubric is what? Be filled with the Spirit. 
There are five participial phrases that flow out of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Do you remember those? Way back. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's five of them. The last one is submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And thus, according to Paul and Ephesians, you hear the domestic relationships that are given to us, and all of them fall under that theme of being filled with the Spirit of God. Please remember that one result of being filled with the Spirit of God is that you will submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So, he will flesh this out, submissiveness to one another in the fear of the Lord. What does it look like? First, he starts with wives unto their husbands, and then he moves to Children unto their parents. Yes, that's the order, not vice versa. No matter what the media would tell you today, that's the order. Children submitting unto their parents. And then here's this third one, slaves and masters. So like women and children, Paul treated all groups, including slaves, check this out, as ethically responsible, even though you're equal members of the body of Christ. So not only do we have the rubric of be filled with the Spirit, but you also have chapter 4, verse 5. There, verse 4, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, and one Lord. Amen? There's one Lord, and whether you are, in this particular context, in the cultural setting of the day, a slave or a master, you are absolutely equal in the sight of God. So he's making that understanding as we go through the text. So he's addressing slaves and then he's addressing masters. There are, uh, again, more verses towards slaves than masters. You only get one, but don't think for a moment he doesn't have a lot to say in that one. So since we do not have slavery in our society, we often jump straight to employee and employer relationships. So what do you all think about that? How many of you would say this is the primary meaning of the text? Employer and employees. Please don't raise your hand. All right, Because it's not. Okay, It's not what Paul is talking about. Will we make application? Yes. And more of the application of this. And parents, please come to church tonight and bring your kids. Because they need to hear the application of this text. And I won't finish this until tonight. I hate to mess up your Sunday. The Bulldogs play tomorrow, all right? KC has already played, all right? Trust me, I'm going to finish the sermon tonight, and you need to hear this. Our kids need to hear how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in life today, okay? So, we're often embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about slavery in the Scripture because, make no bones about it, when you read that first verse, slaves, obey your masters. Now, how does that sound to a lost world? How does that even sound to so-called evangelicals in our world who dumb down distinctives that are in, in personhood and genders, right? How does it sound? So I want to encourage you that we shouldn't be embarrassed about what the text has to say about slavery in Scripture. We don't want to skip over this section and run directly to employee-employer relationships that's not helpful at all to skip the context. And it actually can be extremely 
dangerous. So we should be so grateful that we live in a society right now at this moment that does not have institutional slavery. But don't forget, there's huge relevancy to other people around the world who would read this text because they tell us that there are over 27 million people in the world today that are slaves. That doesn't sink into us, but it's a reality. So let's say, young people, that you engage... Y'all awake? All right. Let's say that we engage into a conversation and you're talking with a lost person, and they say something to you like this. You believe that text that a, woman sh- a wife should submit unto her husband, and you dutifully say yes. And you believe that the husband should be the leader of the home, and you dutifully say yes. But you also believe that homosexuality is a sin according to the Bible. What's your response going to be? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches clearly. However, what if they say this? Well, the Bible also says that slaves should obey your masters. What say you, Mr. Believing Person or Mrs. Believing Person? So what happens is we begin to be embarrassed about what the Bible says instead of finding out contextually what it actually means. Okay? So how would you answer that particular question? Would you say, well, I don't, I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul meant when he talked about slaves and masters. And they're going to say to you, well, the Bible affirms that there's a slave-master relationship and one should obey the other. And what they do is they say, well, if you can't accept that, then surely I can't accept gender distinctions. I'm not going to accept that a husband should lead the home or a wife should submit unto her husband if you're going to turn right around and not accept what Paul says about slavery. You understand how dangerous it is to remove something from its context. So we as God-fearing believers can stand totally against the institution of slavery, but we can also stand totally against anything that contradicts what the Word of God says, meaning transgender distinctives and all of those things that are against God's creative order. So it's important that I dig into certain sermons like this and do them in two parts. It's good for you that I'm going to preach these two sermons in two different situations and not both sermons this morning. All right? It's good for you, but it's also good for us to look behind the scenes and understand because it's not only the world that's going to challenge us, it is so called evangelicals who do not believe the Bible. Okay? We, we are in a mess in our country, right? And just because you bear the name Christian does not mean that you belong to Christ. Okay? And so it's important for us to know. So again, Let's find out what the Bible says about slavery and ultimately why rejecting slavery as a social social institution doesn't mean that we reject what the Bible says about gender roles and about heterosexuality. What does the Bible say about slavery? You ready for a summary? Trust me, this is a thumbnail. There's no way in one setting that I could do all of what the Bible has to say. But let me help you see this. You have an outline for this morning? That's really for tonight. That's just to pique your interest so you understand what it is. So what does the Bible say? Uh, Again, let's start with the Old Testament. And here's what we know around here. The Old Testament is a Christian book. And it's real easy for people to say, oh, you're going over there to the Old Testament. Yes, there's a reason for that. Because that's three quarters of your Bible. 
Don't reject God's word to you. And three quarters of it is found in the Old Testament. Amen. So please don't say, well, here we go again, back to the Old Testament. The OT, OT is a Christian book. Here's the first thing. The Old Testament recognized and regulated slavery as a national and domestic institution in Israel. Okay? you got to listen to me, okay, kids? Everybody listening? If you go out of here... And you say something I didn't say, I'm going to come over to your home very uh, sanctified and pastorally and kick you in your shin. All right? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Make sure you hear me out. But this is good for you to know in our world today, okay? So the Old Testament recognized, notice the words, and regulated slavery as a national and domestic institution in Israel. So both of those are true. The Old Testament recognized and yet regulated. You know the Old Testament established laws for slavery. Exodus chapter 31. I'm not going to read, excuse me, Exodus 21. I'm not going to read those. You do it on your own time. And then in Leviticus 25, we have the establishment of slavery laws. You know, God tells his people how to buy slaves. He tells them how to free slaves. He gives policies on how to treat slaves. He gives a difference. Do you all remember this in Sunday school? Right? He gives a difference between a Hebrew who is to be an indentured servant versus a pagan prisoner of war, a POW. So what the policies are, how to treat even a pagan slave versus how to treat a Hebrew servant. Without question, the Old Testament established laws regarding slavery. I did not say the Old Testament established slavery. Okay, there's a kick in the shin if you misinterpret what I'm saying, right? The Old Testament also legally regulated. Not only did it recognize, it regulated slavery with the following. Slaves were to be given Sabbath rests. Did y'all know that? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and even foreign slaves were to be given Sabbath rests. God actually prohibits in the word of God enslaving people. Exodus 21. This means no man stealing. So if countries in the Western world and civilization would have followed the laws of the Old Testament from the beginning, you would have never had a slave trade because stealing is man stealing is condemned in both New and Old Testament. There were laws for release of slaves after the seventh year called the year of Jubilee. There were laws for release after seven years. There were laws pertaining to POWs. What do you do with a runaway slave? I remember reading that. Well, interestingly, it says you don't return them to their master. There's a lot of things given. So the Old Testament established laws for slavery and legally regulated it. Okay, if, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't want to continually say this, but stay with me. So to assert that slavery was recognized... And regulated does not imply that it was inherently good. Divorce was recognized and regulated under Old Testament laws. And I don't think a single one of us or anybody else would argue the moral virtues and righteousness of divorce. There's a reason why God in Malachi says he hates divorce. Just because God regulates something... 
because something is recognized does not mean that it is inherently good. So there was a theologian who lived many years ago, last name Thornwell, and this is what he wrote. Listen. During a period in our country when slavery was legal, said this, slavery is a part of the curse which sin introduced into the world and stands in the same general relation to Christianity as poverty, sickness, disease, and death. It is inconsistent with a perfect state. That is, it is not absolutely a good. It is emphatically not a blessing. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Thumbnail, right? You, you have to study on your own. But here's the New Testament. It assumes, notice the wording carefully, it assumes slavery and regulates it as a domestic institution. Are you ready for this? Added to it Christian distinctives. That one is so important for you to grasp in the New Testament. It affirms slavery, regulates it among domestic institutions, and adds in Christian distinctives. So slavery was a reality in this era. Do you know how many slaves there were upon the writing of the New Testament in the Greco-Roman world at this point? Sixty million. Now that's something for us to pause and to think that a third or more of the known world was in slavery. And we, we, we're removed from that context, aren't we? And it had nothing to do with race. You could be in any race, any socioeconomic class. As a matter of fact, doctors at times were slaves. So that, that was not the issue. It was simply a reality in the culture. It's always been a reality, and it would continue to be a reality for centuries to come in virtually every culture and every land. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but here's the reality. I can almost guarantee you that every single one of us in this auditorium has ancestors somewhere along the line that were slaves to somebody. If you go far enough back, you're going to find that. This is a human plague. So the New Testament does something that is amazing. Did you all notice the text? It affirms the equality between a slave and a master. And it Christianizes the practice for those who are within those social statuses. And it does so with both masters and slaves. That's what Paul is doing. Folks, this is unbelievably, absolutely revolutionary for Paul to put this in here. Not even those who are philosophically, politically, and culturally savvy like Seneca and other philosophers, ever wrote such an outlandish thing that a slave was equal to their master. But we're dealing with the ways of God, not man. We're dealing with what the Scripture teaches. So yet, God does. So in the context of equality, in the context of a New Testament church, right? This is what this is written to, the church of Ephesus. Here is a Christianized practice for those who were in the church. And Paul, remember, would say things like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. He would say things like this. Neither male or female. Don't take that the wrong way. He's talking about distinctives, not blurring the lines between what a male is and a female is. He's telling you that whether you're a man or a woman, when you belong to Christ, you belong to the Lord equally with everybody else. If you're a bond or a free, you belong to the Lord equally. So, we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is revolutionary. So here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, 
we have another example of a New Testament ethic. Notice how he addresses each group. There is a work ethic for slaves. There is a work ethic for masters. He addresses both of them. Uh, another great thing to read would be like Colossians 3. We've called it the sister epistle. Let me just breeze through a couple of comments so you see the ethic in the New Testament. Chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Young people, y'all see that? Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Very similar teaching. One of the most phenomenal portions found anywhere in the Bible that deals with slavery is a very oft-neglected book. Y'all know which one it is? As a matter of fact, you're going to probably have a hard time finding it. It's the book Philemon. Y'all know where that book is? How many pages does it take up in your Bible? In mine, it's only one. As a matter of fact, it's only 25 verses. Would you turn to that book for me? Ha, <laughs> now you're going to struggle. To help you out, it follows Titus, and it is right before Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews and flip back one page. Do you know Philemon was a leader in the church? All right, folks, you're listening, but what else was Philemon? He was a slave owner, okay? He was. He was a leader in the church, but he was a slave owner, and he has a runaway slave named Onesimus, and he later bumps into Paul by divine providence. Paul leads him to faith in Christ, and now Paul is writing a letter back to Philemon, who owned, as a slave, Onesimus. Check out what the Word of God says. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. By the way, this is an awesome book for, for leadership in the church. How we should lead, right? What an awesome book. Uh, awesome chapter, too. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he was wronged, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. You know how sometimes we would say, now listen up at this point, bucko. Here's a parenthetical for you so that you listen real well. I will repay it to say nothing of your only owing me even your own self. Paul's being pretty strong here. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart 
as in Christ. So just think about how awesome this is. It's one of the most amazing statements found anywhere it's in the, in the Bible. You receive Onesimus as, you, as you've received me. He's a brother in the Lord. So he, finds, he, he comes to Christ, and this is one of the most amazing statements. And, and I just say that to let you know that in the New Testament, it assumes slavery, but then regulates it as a domestic institution and applies the principles of the gospel and affirms total equality between a master and a slave. Now, let me make a few comments. Uh, here's the first one. The apostles were not abolitionists. Now, again, listen close. It's very easy to get upset with Paul because what do we want to say? Why didn't Paul say free all the slaves? Okay? That's, that's a response. Paul was not a political activist. Okay? Paul was a herald of the gospel. He, no amens? He was a herald of the gospel. If you, have set, if you would have set all the slaves free in the known world, where would the gospel had been at this particular point? Right? Because the gospel was being heralded among all people groups. So, Christianity is not a political activist movement. Are y'all hearing me? It is the message of genuine liberation from the power, not of earthly masters, but the power of sin. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. Even though they were not abolitionists or political activists, they saw how the gospel of Jesus Christ could transform anybody. Slaves and masters. So Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 7, if you, if you gain your freedom, you ever read this? Go ahead and take it if you've gained your freedom. But if you don't regain your freedom then be content where you are and understand that you're really owned by Christ, not the man. Right? So Paul gives these regulations. They taught that he taught that masters need to be kind and fair, but slaves are to work hard and be honest. Masters and slaves were first and foremost brothers in Christ. Here are a few concluding observations for this summary. It would be very naive for us to simply dismiss slavery as something totally contrary to the will of God. Now, keep in mind, why am I saying this? Because God works in every area of one's life to get his will accomplished. And it may very well be, and it was, think about Onesimus' condition. Would he ever came to faith in Christ? Well, we know God controls those things. But still, Onesimus runs away, and he runs straight into the gospel. Right? That's exactly what happens to him. So be very careful what you say can and cannot be in the revealed will of God. You will embarrass yourself because the Bible says contrary to that. God put Joseph directly into slavery so that he could deliver his people out of Egypt. So slavery was a reality in this fallen world. It's still a reality in this fallen world. In many places outside of Western civilization. However, like divorce, God made provision. God made regulation for it. And in a sense, he redeemed it from a corrupt and wicked situation. Or redeemed it from as wicked as it could be. Right? Because of the gospel. So, second, the Bible brought ethical standards to the reality of slavery. Just as law and gospel brought ethical standards to divorce, 
it brought ethical standards to the way women are treated, right? So it also brought an ethical standard to the institution of slavery. Third, the Bible gave these ethical regulations and gave a consistent understanding of the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of personhood. Why? Because we're all made in the image of God and redemption and so on that has influenced these practices that were, say, a violation of God's created order, such as polygamy, such as slavery. So the Bible's teaching not only regulated it in the way that it did it, but it also continued to give the sanctity of truth. And that ended up powerfully undermining those institutions and those practices. Let me tell you, folks, God's Word makes a difference. Thus saith the Lord makes a difference. So what do we say to a person who says the same Bible that condones the headship of men and condones the submission of women and also condemns homosexuality is the same Bible that affirms slavery and tells them to obey their masters? It doesn't help one bit for you to say, well, that's not what the Bible means. It doesn't help anybody for you to say, well, that's not what the Bible says. Here, let me give you a stab at how to handle this. First... The roles of men and women and husbands and wives as a monogamous and heterosexual unity before God is a matter of God's creation ordinance and is a matter of God's created order. Are y'all hearing me? When it comes to male and female, God made man and he made man male and female. End of story. And then he brought to the man... A woman, and remember the teaching in the New Testament, it is the will of God for this reason that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one. So before sin ever came into this world, God, ha God had ordained one man that would marry one woman and that be for a lifetime. Are y'all getting this? That's created order. That's what God did. And so thus we can say definitively and without apology that creation ordinance commanded in creation and God's creative order, the way things ought to be, affirmed man as male and female, male and female as heterosexual married unities before God. And man and woman with specific and God-ordained roles and how they function in this world. Next... Here is where we need to be sharp when we say this. Slavery was not a creation ordinance. Are you all with me? It wasn't. Work was. Adam worked in the garden before the fall. After the fall, it had some thorns. Right? It came by the sweat of your brow. Not as easy, of course, as before. That's an understatement. Neither was slavery recognized in the creative order itself. Rather, slavery was a pre-existent social evil in a fallen world, even when God first established his own people, Israel. Did y'all know that? So it was God's law that brought regulations. It was God's law that, in a sense, humanified the institution to curb evil. And so I can, without apology, affirm Without contradiction what, the, contradiction, what the Bible teaches about creative order of man as male and female. I can condemn with a good conscience feminism. I can condemn that from the Bible. 
I can condemn egalitarianism, that women and men are completely equal in every realm, function. That's not true. We are completely equal in dignity of personhood, but not in function. Because the Bible clearly teaches their difference. I can condemn homosexuality because these things are a corrupt violation to God's intended order. And you can throw slavery right in there with it. Okay? We can be opposed to slavery as a social evil. Just as we are in principle opposed to divorce. Which is a violation of God's intended order. And just as much as we can be opposed to polygamy. As a violation of God's intended order. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to be very thankful to our God that he's been kind and merciful to us. He hasn't been aloof and removed from the real pains of this world. But according to his kindness, he's regulated these pains in the world. And in a very real sense, he's brought mercy to bear in these situations in a fallen race. And we need to be so thankful to our God. How do you go to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9... And apply this teaching to contemporary society. If I'm saying, if you say, well, pastor, uh, I get it that this is kind of removed from us because we don't have institutional slavery in the United States of America. How are we going to apply this to our situation? Well, we've got a military chaplain in here. You mean to tell you who he obeys? The military. If they say, James, you're deployed. Where are you going tomorrow? Yeah. Is that not, does that not, that, that may be the actual strongest link to this particular application to the text that we have may actually be in regards to military. However, if you're honest with the text, you realize that the, the, the primary meaning is not employer and employees. However, when it comes to application, there is certainly some overture of application when it comes to believers either being an employer or an employee. I'm just reminding you that you can't start there in this particular text. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 17 says that we are to honor the emperor. Now last time I checked, we don't have a king in the U.S. He may think he is. Well, does he even know if he's in the world or not? I don't know. But the fact is... The fact is, how do, you, how do you move and function when the Bible tells you specifically as a believer to honor the emperor? We can't do that because in the historical context, there was a monarchy at that point, an emperor who ruled with an iron fist. So to say honor the president is not the same thing. So it's not directly relevant to us. Then we must ask, how is the relevance brought to us in contemporary society? And we make application. Now you've got to be careful because it can be dangerous if you push the application too far. There is a marked difference between cultural practice and norms that violate God's rule and those that don't violate God's rule. I hope you understand that. So culture and practice are always subordinate to a sovereign God. Right? Culture and practice are never neutral. Although they may not always be or are necessarily immoral. The cultural practice today, or cultural philosophy today, of feminism and transgenderism that seeks to wipe away gender roles and gender distinctions is a direct violation of God's creative order and His direct commands given in the Word of God. 
So when it says honor the king, we know what that means. We, we take that in our understanding to say if government officials have been put in that place of authority, then we're called by God to honor them whether we like it or not. Okay? Let me give you another example. If, if I'm already in hot water, I might as well step into a little hotter water. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And some of you think, well, Paul was a sexist jerk. And I'm so glad that our culture has freed us of this kind of idiocy. Well, is this a cultural norm that Paul is talking about or a creative account? Or creative order? Well, folks, it'd be real easy to dismiss this if this was only culturally. But Paul begins to tell you in 1 Timothy why this is true. Because God made man first. And then the created woman. So he's tying every bit of that to creative order. For us to stand against what the Bible says about women being pastors would be to stand against God. Period. Why? Because he's given us creative order. And he's not basing it on culture. He's basing it on how he made man and woman. And the last time I checked in Genesis, that hasn't changed. Okay? That's how we deal with these things. We don't, nor can we do this. We can't ignore what the Bible says. So, when Paul would root an argument with male-female roles in creation, not culture, then we better listen to it. Okay? Now, here's another example. We have a democratic republic, or maybe... Timothy could help us better with this. A democratic constitutional republic. Now question. Did God establish any governmental rules in creation? No. He didn't. Except one of these days he's going to rule it all. Without question. But the fact of the matter is. This is what we as the people live under. Now do we feel like that's slipping away? Oh absolutely. But again. God doesn't address government in creative order. So the most applicable social structure, I think, other than military, James, would certainly be to employer-employee. We can say that the closest situation that comes out of this with careful understanding, there's not a one-for-one equivalent. Why? Because you volunteer to take a job last time I checked. As a slave, you're not volunteering. You were a slave. So someone, you volunteer, take the job, and you get paid, you get hired. So we've got some application that we give and bring from this, but you must take it uh, with sensitivity to the understanding, okay? What does emerge from this text, and I'm, I'm wrapping, I'm going to land the plane, you ready? Is a work ethic that honors God and demonstrates how people filled with the Spirit of God relate to one another in the work context. What an awful, disgusting testimony it is for you to say you're a member of FBC Ozark and you belong to Christ and then you go off to work and act like a heathen. Is that pretty clear? I mean, let's be honest. It's one thing to say you belong to Christ and if there's anything I've ever tried to teach you as a church since I've been here in six and a half years, I think back on coming and preaching my first five sermons on worship. Worship is not just here at 1030 on Sunday. Worship is Every day of your life. It is everything that you do in your life. And so we remind ourselves of this. There is a Christian work ethic. If you're an owner of a business. And there is if you've got employees. And if you are the employer. 
Understand, folks, that every relationship, every sphere of life for the Christian is holy and it is sacred. And it is a part of God's calling upon your life. And it is God's will for your life. Every aspect, every sphere. You have people in this world that say they're believers and they actually act like historic, old-time, medieval Roman Catholics. What do I mean by that? They took the secular and the sacred and they separated them. How do you know that? Well, do anything you want to during the week secularly and just run to a priest and confess it. And you're, you're free from it, right? So a lot of Baptists even live that way. We separate the secular from the sacred. The secular stuff is what I do without God. And the sacred stuff is what I do from, from 11 to 12 on Sunday. For our church, it's, 11, it's 1030 to probably 1145, right? It's probably an hour 15. So the Bible once for all obliterates that, people. Church family, it obliterates any such distinction from any relationship that you have. Husbands, love your wives. Enough said. Wives, submit unto your husbands. That's domestic. Does that not touch every area of life for you if you're married? Children. Are you all awake? Obey your parents. Masters, treat your slaves properly. And slaves, submit. So whether it's church life, whether it's work life, and listen, whether it's even play life, you do it at all for the glory of God. You understand how serious this is? It's so serious that if you've been transformed by grace, folks, it touches every area of life. Not just coming to church at 1030 on Sunday morning. I mean, folks, we, we have to get this, that it affects every area of life, every area of our lives. So, for the Christian, all of life is holy. All of life is sacred. And as a part of God's call on your life, so is your work, vocation. That's a part of God's call from your life. So holiness pertains to not only what you put into the offering plate. Holiness de uh, depends on more than just you reading your Bible. Holiness pertains as well to everything you do in life. Even what your work is. I know around the church everybody wants to do ministry. And everybody wants to be in this ministry that ministry. And the Lord says, do you want to be a good Christian? Realize that I see you at work. Is that not true? Absolutely. He does. You want to be holy? You don't have to become a foreign missionary and get on a plane. You want to be holy? Then work unto me in your workplace. Because the real heavenly master sees. The real heavenly master will reward you. So where you work is just as much a part of your calling as a husband or a father in that sphere of work. We live our lives before the face of God. Does anybody know the Latin phrase for that? Corum Deo. That ought to be your motto. You live your life always before the presence of God. Corum Deo. We need to remember that, folks. You live every waking part of your life before the face of God. And He knows it all. And according to this text, there are some motivations for slaves and masters. We're going to be rewarded one day by the king. Amen? Now, let me close with this. This is it for sure. Are you ready? Acts 11, 26, I think, says they were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, think about this. 
Believers were called a lot of things in the New Testament up to that point. The people of the way, disciples, followers of Christ, uh, sons of God, children of God. But for the first time, they were called Christians in Antioch. In other words, the word called means to bear the name. So folks, that was not a term of endearment. It was not something like, wow, you're a Christian. You can run for political office. It's not what that was. They were being persecuted for the faith. And those people knew full well. It was the world that was calling them Christians. They knew that they identified with Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just saying, I belong to him. They actually lived their lives in such a way that their vocation was connected to Christ. Everything about them was connected to Jesus. So I've got a question for you. Has anyone called you a Christian lately? Are you living worthy of the name? Not just saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but actually living in such a way that the way you live your life, people would say on the, on the outside world looking in, lost people, that person belongs to Jesus. Not by just identification, by name only, but that particular person actually lives and follows Jesus Christ. That's what this means. Whether you're an employee or employer, husband or wife, child, parent, all of life, every sphere of life has been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. To God be the glory. Please, the sermon's not over. And I just kind of felt like recently, praying through this year, that I don't need to only give you series on Sunday morning. Why? Because it gives me a double shot on Sunday to preach in Ephesians. So if you miss these, you're going to be fine because Jason's going to record them. But I shouldn't have told you that. But please come back and have your children under the word and you to hear the second part of this. All right? If you're lost, here we go. You've been bought with a price if you're saved. You were bought from the slave market of sin. I bought you with a price and you are now my possession. Now look, folks, that's a royal slavery, right? There's a difference. And there's a book by John MacArthur that he wrote in 2010 called Slave. I'd love for you to go buy that. It'd be worth it. Maybe I'll put it out here so you can see what it is. Go buy that and read it. It's the greatest treatment of the word slave found anywhere in the Bible. But we are royal slaves of Christ. He's our master. Amen. If you're lost today, understand that Jesus Christ can save you. Amen. The gospel saves sinners. Amen. You respond to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. And we, again, thank you for your word. Lord, um, we need to hear truth today. And we need to know how to react when people challenge us. And when things are given in the Bible from creative order, from you directly, we're going to stand on them, Lord. We're going to stand on your word, no matter what it takes. As followers of Christ have done for years. And some of them even gave their lives for it. But Lord, in other areas, help us to be sensitive. Help us to stand against those things that are a violation to your will. And also the mistreatment of your people. God, help us. Help us to be uh, your people who are against things, whatever that might be, that degrades, that doesn't show Christian uh, character and ethics in the workplace uh, with employers and employers. Help us all, Lord, to act uh, as believers in the world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To the hillside, turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace there the son of god gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased jesus to you we lift our eyes jesus our glory and our Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Well, amen. We don't talk about finances a whole lot in our church. We just allow God to lead and you to be obedient. But I have to tell you, December was amazing. Don said it's in the top three of the entire church life forever that we had an offering given. And it was right at $200,000 in one month. So uh, to God be the glory. That helps us almost pay uh, for our clothing ministry for a whole year rent with excess money. Uh, Don, do you know how much we ended in the good? Quit spending. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we're going to be in excess of 100000 on the year of giving. Folks, that helps us do more ministry, Right. So to God be the glory. I know the building fund caught up and exceeded. Uh, it's uh, such a blessing. I just commend you for being obedient to the Lord. Amen. God bless each one of you. Amen. God bless you. See you tonight.